we're looking at Matthew chapter 16 this morning, a very popular, very, um, very debated and very easy to misunderstand text. And so we do want to spend some time with it. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. And um, I will uh, read as you just simply follow along in your copy of the word. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. You know, um, I've never been much of a, of a gimmick kind of guy. Um, you know, I, I've, I've been in churches before where they've done like a cowboy Sunday or a uh, country Western Sunday, or uh, uh, strangely, I've never been in a church that did a Renaissance Sunday. That's the one I've always wanted to go to. I, I think it'd be cool to, to worship the dulcibers and lutes and refer to one another as my Lord and my Lady, you know, and that kind of stuff. But, uh, but uh, that's never happened, which is weird considering all the Renaissance festivals that go on. You'd think somebody would, would uh, put up a church, something like that. But I don't know. I've just never been much of a gimmick guy. I, you know, uh, high attendance Sundays and stuff like that, where you, where you really, you know, go all out and you bring in special music and you bring in special speakers and and all that kind of stuff. Not that there's anything wrong necessarily with any of it, but but here's the problem with that kind of stuff: is that what it takes to get someone in your church, it will take to keep them there. And if you're going to do that kind of stuff, then you better be ready to do it every Sunday because that's, what's gonna, that's what it's gonna take to keep the ones that you get by doing that kind of stuff. And so I've just, I've just never really been a big believer in that kind of stuff. And, but I understand why we do it because, beloved, the truth is, is that the church is very much in a crisis today, very much in a crisis I think a lot of people don't see it as much as maybe um, some of the more informed do because you see all of these studies where it says that born-again Christians make up 40% of America. Let me ask you a question. If you were to go to New York or LA or, or, even, or even Little Rock for that matter or even Batesville, if you ran into 10 people, would you believe that four of them are genuine evangelical Christians? Probably not. Experience tells us that that's not the case. And as uh, some other researchers have kind of tightened up what it means to be evangelical, what it means 
to be born again. Uh, three or four different studies have done this, all independent of one another. Nobody knew the other one was doing this, and yet they all came to similar results. That when it comes to actual biblical Christianity, those who are truly living the life that would suggest that they are born again, the actual number is somewhere in the neighborhood of seven to eight percent of America are actually Christian. Way lower than what we think. Way lower. This comes out every time we have an election where we're told on the radio, all of the Christians are out there. If you will just go out there and vote your values and all the Christians go out there and it doesn't seem to make that big of a difference, does it? Why is that? Because a lot of the Christians who are in church, they are voting their values. They're just not biblical values. They're just not biblical values. And so when we look, when we tighten up that definition of what it means to be the church, the truth is the church is in a crisis. We've had a massive loss of cultural influence. And, and the truth is, is that it's shrinking. These studies were done in 2013. It's 10 years later. I assume and I, I fear that the numbers are even far worse. And so there's a temptation to do things to try to get people in. We've all seen the videos of preachers who ride zip lines down to the pulpit, and which I am totally gonna do that one day. <laughs> uh, we see the, if you can find one that'll hold me up, I'll do it. And so... <laughs> Um, we, uh, we see the motorcycles being driven on stage and we see the fog machines and we see the, the big lights and we see all of this stuff being done. I know of churches that don't even sing sacred music. They sing secular music to try to bring people in and, and trick them, kind of pulling a bait and switch that if we can entertain them enough to where they'll come in and then we can sneak the gospel in there. There's a temptation to do all of that stuff. And of course, we don't agree with that, but the question still remains with all of this shrinking influence and all of this, all of this crisis that has taken place, what must we do? Because we gotta do something. And the question is, what must we do? Matthew chapter 13 through Matthew 18 is all about the disciples' community. It's, it's all about what it means to be a community of believers, what it means to be a community of disciples. And you would think that in this text, it would have, in this context, it would have something that deals with how do we respond to a world and worldly wisdom that is very much against biblical wisdom and how can we expand the community of disciples, and you will not be disappointed to know that yes, it is there, and that is what we're looking at this morning. When Christ says in verse 18, he says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. You wanna know how to build the church? It's simple, let Jesus do it. Beloved, we can build crowds. We can build crowds of interested people. We can, we can do all kinds of things, but only Christ can build a church. And notice he does not relinquish ownership of it. It is his church. 
And so the question is, how does he do that? What does this mean for us? Because of the temptation to, to build a, a church group on worldly wisdom, and we're seeing this all over the place today, because of that temptation, we must rely upon Christ to build his church, Christ and Christ alone. And the question is, how will he do that? And he gives us two different answers here today. And since we are minus a PowerPoint, thankfully, Christ does not depend on PowerPoints to uh, build his church. Thank goodness. Thank goodness he doesn't depend on suits either. I'm kind of hot up here, but um, I'll go ahead. He, he builds it on confession and he builds it on commission. Now, I'll, commission has a couple different ways it can be understood, so I'll, I'll give you that here in a little while. But first and, more, and, and, and importantly, he builds his church upon confession. And going back to verse 13, he asked the people, he asked the disciples, what do the people say that the Son of Man is? What does it mean? What, what does he mean when he says, I will build my church? On what foundation? What is it that he's building the church on? As Christ is going through an area known as Philip's Caesarea, uh, it's the furthest north that Jesus is recorded as going. This area today is known as the Golan Heights. It's, uh, it's very different from the rest of Israel. I was there in February, and there was snow on the ground, and you don't often think of that when you think of, when you think of Israel, but this area is very high elevation. It's only about an hour away from the Dead Sea, which, you know, is all desert and hot and all that. You can go north, and it's all snow and ice and those kinds of things, and that is where he is, and he travels to this area and asks them this explosive question, who do men say that the Son of Man is? Now, you could ask, why does he need to ask that question? Because surely he knew. Surely he knew. If not by divine knowledge, which he probably knew that, but if not by divine knowledge, probably just by the, the general atmosphere of what he feels when people are around him. I mean, no doubt. We understand what that means, right? I mean, you kind of get an idea of, of, of kind of what people are thinking the more you're around people and all that. You kind of start to read their body language. You kind of start to see their gestures and that kind of thing and hear the timbre of their voice and stuff. And, and no doubt, Jesus was not a social fool. He knew that, yes, I, I understand what people are saying, but why is he asking the question? Not to gain information, but to reach hearts. You see, questions are the key that unlocks the heart of people. You remember when Adam sinned in the garden, God came walking in the garden, and what's the first thing he does? Adam, where are you? He knew. He knew exactly where they were. He knew exactly what they did, but he asked questions. Why? Because questions are the key that unlocks people's hearts. This is, this is very important in evangelism. A lot of times when I share the faith with someone, I'll spend the first 15, 20 minutes just asking them questions and getting them thinking and, and getting them to realize certain things. 
And that's what Jesus is doing here. It's not to gain information. He wants to know where they are. They had seen miracles. They had heard his teaching. They had determined in John 6 that he had the words of life and there was nowhere else that they could go. We saw in Matthew chapter 14 after he walked on the sea in this highly intense situation that they exclaimed that you are truly the son of God. And these brief moments of insight are absolutely necessary to their growth and to their, to their discipleship. But now it's time to decide who is the Son of Man, who is Jesus. So the big question, the question of all eternity, the question that each and every one of us must answer is, verse 15, who do you say that Jesus is. And Simon Peter answers in verse 16. One of the greatest confessions of all the Bible. He says that in verse 16. You are the Christ. The son of the living God. By the way, you need to understand that. Because in verse 18, he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Why, why is he building it on Peter? Because Peter spoke up. That's all. There's nothing about Peter that makes him special. He's not the first pope. He's not, the, he's not any of these things. Why is it that Jesus says, upon this rock, Peter, I will build my church? Because Peter's the one who spoke. I mean, John could have spoken first, and I imagine he would have said the same thing. Now, we do see later on, Peter does take leadership. And I don't think that's a coincidence. But why does he pick on Peter? Because Peter spoke up. He's speaking of Peter's confession, not Peter himself. And I've seen all kinds of verbal gymnastics, you know, you, you are Peter and upon this rock, you are Petras and upon this Petra, I will build my church, you know, and they do all kinds of ways to try to try to separate, you know, those cognates and different things. Beloved, you don't need any of that. Look at what Peter just said. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, I will build my church upon your confession, Peter. Everyone who follows Peter's example in that confession will be built into the church. And it is upon that rock. And by the way, you're gonna notice that there's two aspects of this. Number one, yes, there is Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. But this is often read over. Look at verse 17. I don't know why I keep going back to chapter 15, but verse 17, it says, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, is what that means, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, the rock is not just talking about Peter's confession, but it is also talking about the grace given to Peter out of which that confession comes. It is the fact that the Father has revealed to Peter that this is the truth, and therefore Peter has been divinely enabled to believe that, yes, divinely enabled to confess, you are the Christ, 
the son of the living God. Think about John 6, verse 44. It says, no one comes to me unless the father draws him. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter three, says that no one can say Jesus, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse three, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the spirit. And so I want you to understand, why is it so important? Because beloved, understand that building the church of Christ is not simply a matter of checking off the right doctrinal boxes. It's not simply a matter of signing on to the right confession. It's not just a matter of of believing the right things. There must be a genuine experience of God's grace that leads us to a genuine confession coming from the heart that Jesus is Lord, that he is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. It is that genuine confession, that spirit-enabled rebirth, that born-againness. I don't know if that's a word, but you know what I'm talking about. It's that, it's that being born again that enables us to see and to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not just checking off the right confessional boxes. It's about, it's about being changed by the grace of God. It's a genuine experience of God's grace. Beloved, unlike Israel, the church is not a mixed community of believers and unbelievers. By the way, this is why we practice confessor's baptism. This is why baptism is the appropriate confession of our faith. We don't baptize our children. Why? Because Christ says he will build his church upon the confession. Not like he built the nation of Israel. And so we even see implements of our of our. Uh, ecclesiology here, our doctrine of the church. Jesus builds his church upon the genuine confession of those who have been touched by his grace and those who have responded to it in confession. So the rock that Jesus is building his church upon is the saving confession of those who have been genuinely born again by the Spirit. That's what this verse is talking about. It's not talking about the Pope. It's not talking about any of that other stuff, simply this. If you wanna come into the kingdom of God, you must believe that Jesus is the Lord. You must submit to him and confess him as Lord. So the, so the basic question is, is who is Jesus? C.S. Lewis gave a fascinating argument and, and much of it is tempered by a lot of the things of his day. So the argument is dated by some, in some ways, but it's still, a, it's still a very powerful argument where he says that Jesus claims to be God. He claims to be the son of the living God, and he is either telling the truth or he is not telling the truth. That is the only two options. If he's not telling the truth, you have a couple of options. Either he doesn't know it, he genuinely believes it, but he's wrong, which makes him a lunatic, Or he does know that he's wrong and he's saying it anyway, which makes him a liar. Or he's telling the truth, which means he's Lord. 
and we must bow down to him. Liar, Lord, or lunatic. Those are really the only three options we have. Who do we say that Jesus Christ is? If he is a lunatic, then we can ignore him. If he is a liar, then we should ignore him. But if he is Lord, we cannot ignore him. We owe him everything. So the question this morning of all eternity is, who do you say Jesus is? Is he Lord? Is he who he claims to be? Or are you gonna say something else? He's a, he's a legend. He's a good teacher. I don't know how you can say that if he claimed to be God and he wasn't. How can you say that's a good teacher? He's either a lunatic, he's a liar, he's a legend, or he's Lord. Those are the choices we have. That's what, you, that's what you must settle in your mind and in your spirit this morning. And if he is Lord, then we must come to Christ on his terms. That we must confess him as Lord, repent of our sins and trust him and in him alone for our salvation. There is nothing else. If there were anything else that were required for, for us to be in the kingdom, if there was any work that must be done, then Christ would still be in the grave paying for our sins. He was risen from, he was raised from the grave by his father. Why? To show that the work was indeed finished. And now we have only to believe in Christ alone by faith alone on the authority of scripture alone, to the glory of God alone, by grace alone. So that's, so, so that's what Christ builds his church on. Beloved, he doesn't need the gimmicks. He doesn't need the, all of this other stuff. All he needs is a church that is willing to preach that message and all of those who will come will come. And we depend upon him. We depend upon, we rely upon him to build his church. I am so thrilled with, with what we have seen happening in Calvary and how uh, I was just talking to someone just the other day and they were telling me that, uh, that Calvary is just the healthiest church that they've ever been able to visit and I'm so thankful for that testimony. We're getting that, we're getting that testimony all around town. And, and I've had other preachers who are struggling and asking me, what is your secret? Beloved, there's no secret. There's no secret. There's no magic pill. There's nothing like that. Well, all it is is that we decided to stop trying to compete with Jesus. <laughs> we stopped trying to think that we had a better idea than the word does. And we allowed him to start building his people. I'm not saying you didn't do that before. I'm not saying there's anything special about it. I'm just saying, but, there's, but the point is, is that there's no secret. There's no, there's no special program. There's no, there's no gimmick. There's no magic pill. It just means that Christ is Lord and he builds his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, 
So if Christ builds his church, that means we can all just sit around and wait for him to do it, right? No, <laughs> that's not what that means. You know, you got kind of a, that's what I say about people who, uh, you know, they believe in God's sovereignty and so that means we don't have to evangelize, we don't have to do anything else. You got a pretty weird idea of sovereignty if you use God's sovereignty as an excuse to disobey him. That's a really weird view of sovereignty. You have no idea what sovereignty means. Does that mean that we just kind of sit around idly and just wait for Jesus to do it? No. He not only builds his church on confession, but he builds his church upon the commission that he gives us. The commission that he gives us. Christ doesn't end the conversation there. He goes on. He says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And how does he expand that out? How does he talk about that? He does so in verses, most of all in verse 19. And I'm going to be honest with you. Verse 19 is challenging. Verse 19 is challenging. So, so you ready? Here we go. He says, and I tell you, you're Peter. That's, the, that's, that's his building the church. In verse 19, he says, I will give you, by the way, this is singular, so he's still talking to Peter. You know, sometimes it's English. It's kind of hard to tell if you is plural, if you is singular. Here, it's singular. So he's still talking to Peter. He says, I give you the kingdom the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be uh, loosed in heaven. That is, that is really weird. What is he talking about here? Well, this has led to endless confusion, endless confusion, uh, not to mention jokes. So many jokes about coming to heaven and meeting St. Peter at the gates. A lot of jokes has led to that, that this passage has led to. And so, I see a couple of you smile. We got a few sinners in the room, so that's good to know. What in the world is he talking about here? Well, a couple things that are gonna help you kind of understand. I, there's some Old Testament background here. And what you wanna look at is, is look back at Isaiah chapter 22 for a moment. Isaiah 22 and what's happening in the context of Isaiah 22 is that Jesus, uh, excuse me, God, well, Jesus, is, is threatening to punish. In fact, he's really no longer threatening anymore. He's saying, this is what I am going to do. And he is, and he is telling the king of Jerusalem, he's pronouncing judgment against Jerusalem. And he's saying that I am going to take the throne away from the current king, and I'm going to give it to a king named Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. Now, you don't need to know that, but I want you to notice down in verse, um, in verse uh, 22, and he says that I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. And he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. Now, now hold on to that for just a moment. And what I want you to do is I want you to turn to Revelation chapter three, where Christ is talking to the church of uh, Philadelphia, I believe it is. Maybe it's Capernaum. Yeah, Philadelphia. Chapter three, verse seven. 
And Jesus says, and this, the words of the Holy One, the true one, watch this, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and shuts and no one will open, right? So Christ is the fulfillment. He is the ultimate fulfillment of the one whom God hands the keys of David to, for which he opens the kingdom and he shuts the kingdom, all right? So, so Christ has the keys. And now as we go back to Matthew with that kind of background, I want you to look at this verse again and say, he says, and to you, Peter, uh, I will give the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So, so you have that kind of background. What keys are we talking about? The keys that have been given to Christ, all authority has been given unto him by his father. And Christ says, I will give you the keys. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosened in heaven. Now, if you're using the NASB or the Christian Standard Bible, uh, I think maybe one of you might be using the Legacy Standard Bible. I doubt any of you are using the Net Bible, but they translate this pretty straight. And it goes like this, that whatever you bound, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosened in heaven. That is very awkward English, which is why the ESV and others avoids it. By the way, the Greek, no less awkward. That is actually uh, a very, that is actually how it should be translated, that whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosened in heaven. That is, that is actually the translation. What in the world does that mean? In other words, Peter, I give you the authority to pronounce what has been done in heaven. I give you the authority to proclaim what has been done in heaven. And when you proclaim the word and someone receives that word in saving faith and you, and you proclaim that they will be saved if they respond in saving faith and they do, that means that they have been saved in heaven. And if you warn an unbeliever that if they do not believe, if they do not confess, if they do not come to Christ, then they are facing an eternal danger to their soul. That, and if they refuse to do so, what you proclaim is what will be done in heaven. Not based on your authority. Peter's not being given any kind of papal authority here to, to open the door and shut the door. That's not what he's doing. What he's saying is that, Peter, to you, I'm handing you to the keys to proclaim what I've done. That's what's happening here. And one of, the, one of the best rules of Bible study is to find passages that talk about the same thing and use the one that's more clear to explain the one that's less clear. And do we have a passage like that? Well, by God's grace, yes, we do. And it's one that's very familiar, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, that, un, that 
all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. There's the keys. Therefore, you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you, binding, loosing, all of those things, what has been done in heaven, I am giving you authority, I'm giving you the keys to proclaim those things. And when you proclaim the gospel to someone, the kingdom is being open to that person and they are being invited in. And if they refuse, the kingdom is shut if they accept, the kingdom remains open to them. That's all this verse means. It's, it's very difficult language. It's kind of a weird figure and the grammar is even worse, but that's all we're talking about. Is that Peter makes a confession and Jesus says, I will build my church upon your confession and when you make that profession, you have the responsibility to tell others that they must also come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And that is how Christ builds his church. He builds it on confession and he builds it on commission. That great commission that he has given us to preach the gospel to all creatures when we declare something to be blasphemy, when we warn unbelievers of the eternal danger, we are warning them that the gates will be shut to them forever if they do not confess, if they do not repent. When we offer someone the gospel, we're telling them that the kingdom has been opened and they are invited in. I was uh, watching a movie. It was, it was uh, there's been two. There's uh, Gettysburg, and then there's a sequel to it called Gods and Generals. Great, great films. Very, very long. But, uh, but great films. I think Gods and Generals is like four hours long. So it's a, it's a, it's a beast to get through. But, but anyway, I, I, I can't remember which film it is, but there's one scene where a private, an army private, is carrying a dispatch to the general, to, uh, to uh, the commander of another force. And, uh, and when that private arrives on his horse and gives him the message from the general, the, the captain or, the, or uh, whoever it was, the major or whoever it was, he actually salutes the private. And the private salutes him back and then they go on their way. And I thought to myself, holy cow, they got that wrong. How in the world is a, is a major, is an officer going to salute a private that would never happen, but actually what I found out, I have, a, I have a friend who's a Civil War buff, and he said actually somebody who, somebody who knew what they were doing directed that scene. That is absolutely true. That's exactly what they would have done. You see, it's not that the private had any authority, but he was carrying the authority of the general. And when he handed the letter, the instructions to the major, the major was saluting the authority of the general, not the private. But he was saluting the, the authority of the general. And beloved Christ here, what he's doing is he's telling us that I will build my church and I am giving you the authority to go out and proclaim my truth, my message. 
And when you are faithful in your proclamation of the truth, it comes with all the authority of heaven. And when we tell someone the gospel, the spirit comes in and he is working in the heart of the individual. And if they come to Christ, if they come to saving faith, it is because it is the spirit who is doing that work, but he is doing it on the basis of our proclaiming the message. And so we are carrying the message, but it is Jesus who has the authority and it is Christ who is building his church. Do you see that? So what does this mean for us? Beloved, we cannot be tempted to try to build our church on anything else. Not on tradition, not on fads, not on popular you know, I was speaking with someone, um, I think it was this morning actually, talking about how listening to sermons and so many of them sound like TED Talks, you know, and stuff like that. And, and we can't build our church on those things. We must build it solely and exclusively upon the authority of Scripture alone because that is the word of Christ alone. And it is Christ who is building his church and when we declare this message, we do it with all the authority of heaven. I have no authority in front of you. Do you know that? Just because I say it doesn't make it true. And outside of this book, I have no authority in this church. And neither do any of us. But when we are faithful to this book, we have all the authority of heaven that comes with it. To the church, to Peter, the confessing Christian, has been given the keys to the kingdom. So let me, um, so what does this mean for us? What does this look like? Let me look to uh, 1 Corinthians for a moment and we'll be done. 1 Corinthians, uh, I'm gonna look at chapter three, verse 10. You can go ahead and turn there, but let me give you the uh, kind of layout of this context where really 1 Corinthians chapter one through four give us probably the most intimate look at, at Paul's philosophy of ministry. Uh, if, you, if you're studying to go into the ministry, and a few of our guys are, you need to know this passage, 1 Corinthians one through four, you need to know this intimately. This is Paul's philosophy of ministry, probably one of the most detailed philosophies that were given. And in the context, he's, he's talking about the difference between God's wisdom versus the world's wisdom. He says, for instance, in, uh, in verse 18 of, ch of chapter one, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is a power of God. Verse 21, uh, he says that for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. 
He goes on and talks about the wisdom of the Spirit and the depending of, uh, and his dependence upon the Spirit, that, that the wisdom of the world is folly to God, and the, and the miracles of the world are folly, are foolishness to God. Even the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisest of men. And he uses all of this terminology and talks about the importance of, of denying the world's wisdom, denying all of these things. And we get down to chapter three, verse 10. He says, now, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Understand, Paul is not still alive today. He is no longer building. He laid the foundation as an apostle, but someone else is building. And look what he says. He said, let each one take care how he builds. Be careful how you build. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. But he goes on in verse 12, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest on the day of judgment. What is the wood, hay, stubble? What is all that stuff that'll be burned up? Look back at the context. What is it? It's the wisdom of the world. It's the signs that the Jews seek. All of that will be burned up. The gold, precious stones, silver, all of the things that will last is the faithful proclamation of the word of God. So beloved, what do we take from this this morning? We take that we must be careful how we build. That Christ is building his church and that upon that foundation we build with the precious stones of biblical truth and gracious wisdom and the wisdom of the Lord and dependence upon the Spirit and we, just like Paul does here, we intentionally reject the wisdom that the world gives us. That's not to say that we can't learn anything from them. But when it comes to a point where they say, if you want to have this or that, if you want to have success in ministry, whatever that means today, if you want to have this or that, you must follow this, you must follow this rule or that rule or, or whatever it is. We intentionally reject that because we depend upon the truth of God's word. We don't need the gimmicks. We don't need the, the secular music. We don't have to put on rock concerts. We don't have to, whether they're the fads of today or the fads of yesterday, they're all fads. We don't depend on those things. We depend upon Christ and Christ alone to build his church. And the way we do that is by faithfully seeking, pursuing, and obeying the truths that he gives us in his word. The same thing that is true for a church is, is a true for a Christian as well. The same thing applies to our Christian life. What are we building our life on? No one can lay a foundation other than Christ. The foundation is laid, but the question is, as, as you have come to a saving knowledge of Christ, what are you depending on to make you holy? What are you turning to? What are you trying to use 
to bring you satisfaction, to bring you joy, to bring you all of these other things? Are you building your life upon the foundation of Christ with precious stones, silver, or are you using the wood, hay, and stubble of the world that will be burned up on the last day? Beloved, I beg you to to be faithful to the word, faithful to the principles of this word, and sometimes we all need help with that, but, but be faithful to it. Be faithful to it. So Christ would call you to two things this morning. He would call you, first of all, if you don't know Christ as your savior, that you must have that foundation. You can build the most beautiful Taj Mahal in the world if it doesn't have the right foundation it's going down at the first sign of trouble. And so you must know Christ. And then beyond Christ, Christ would ask you, he would call you, what are you building your life upon? Are you building kingdoms of sand upon a foundation of rock? And yeah, the foundation will stand. You'll, Christ is going nowhere. Foundation will stand, but everything on top of it will be blown down. Is that what we're building our life upon or are we building our life with the, with the, with the tools and with the truths that Christ gives us in his word? The same thing that's true for a church is true for an individual Christian. And so we must ask ourselves this morning, am I, am I one of the called and am I one of the committed? In either way, if you know you're falling short, if you know that you are not one of those, I pray the Lord will do business in your heart this morning. Father, we thank you for allowing us to be here today. We thank you for these truths. And I pray, Lord, that if there's one here who does not know you as Savior, or maybe they know you as Savior, but they are building their lives upon the sand, upon the wood, hay, and stubble of worldly entertainment, of worldly wisdom, or whatever it is, I pray that they will come to a deeper and more a deeper knowledge of who you are. Lord, that you will sustain them, that you will build them. Lord, that you will use our church to, to help them to do that, to hold them in accountability, to, to help them to, that's what the church is all about. We're gonna see that in, in Matthew 18, that, that we are doing holy war against sin in our lives and we're, we're here to help one another. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here struggling this morning, that you will, you will help them to find, they won't find judgment here. They won't find, we've, they won't find any of that, but they will only find love and acceptance and help. And that's what we want to give, Lord. We wanna be a hospital. We want to help those who need you. So Lord, we pray that you will call us and you will help us to be committed to the task that you've given. I wanna ask you to stand and we're just gonna sing a verse or two of I Surrender All, very appropriate, Lord. If, if you're here this morning and, and there's something that you need prayer for or any further guidance, we are here. You may, you may come down or if you're here this morning and 
You've received the word of, of Christ. You know you're saved, but you haven't confessed that publicly in baptism. Maybe you're here and you need to join a Bible teaching, believing church this morning. Whatever your need is, we invite you to come as we sing together.